I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast for the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. This is another one of those weeks where it feels like only one thing in the world is going on, which isn't true, obviously, but it's hard not to feel that way. And while I am typically okay with letting sort of larger societal issues fade into the background while we take a half hour or so here to talk about birds, there are a couple birding elements in this particular incident that make it impossible to do so. Or at least I feel like it would be irresponsible of me not to comment on it given this platform that I have. Of course, I am speaking of Christian Cooper and sort of the larger issue of the black experience in America. And I'm speaking primarily to white birders here. I know we have a few black birders who listen and subscribe. Hello, thank you. But if the listenership of this podcast is reflective of the birding community at large, it's going to be overwhelmingly white. And I ask you before we get too deep into this, please don't be fragile here. We need to be clear-eyed enough to acknowledge these realities so that we can be effective allies, which I know is what you want. And this will be sort of on the long side, so bear with me. There is a wonderful interview with David Sibley on the other side of it, so you can wait for that. If you are online, you probably know this story, but just in case. On Memorial Day last Monday, a New York birder, Christian Cooper, who is black, was birding the ramble in New York's Central Park when he encountered a white woman with an unleashed dog in a place where dogs are required to be leashed. Not an unusual sort of circumstance when you are a birder. He asked that she please leash her dog. She refused. He offered her dog a dog treat, which some people took issue with. I'll be, I'll be honest, that seemed like a pretty good way to elicit a response from the dog owner. Uh, at which point she flipped out and Christian Cooper began recording the incident on his phone. And this is where it switched from a more or less run-of-the-mill encounter with an obstinate dog owner and into something that sent shockwaves through the birding community and then the wider world. Because what the woman did while Christian was recording her was to call the New York City Police Department and accuse Christian Cooper of attacking her, specifically saying, I'm going to tell them that there is an African-American man threatening my life and devolving into manufactured hysterics on the phone with the police dispatcher. Now, you might ask yourself why this is important, and in fact, I have seen that question asked on social media. Well, later that day, we learned why in Minneapolis with the murder of George Floyd at the hands of officers of the Minneapolis Police Department. So I'm going to try and make this as clear as possible because I did see some people not getting it in various places online. What this woman, Amy Cooper, wanted was for Christian Cooper, the birder, to be George Floyd. What she wanted 
was for the New York police to arrive, to detain Christian Cooper, maybe violently, to punish him for the imagined crime of telling her to follow the rules, to potentially kill him as law enforcement killed George Floyd. That was the scenario that she felt comfortable initiating. Because that is the only explanation for her behavior. She implicitly understood that her word would mean more than Christian Cooper's. She implicitly understood that there is a long history of law enforcement abuse of power and murder with regard to black people. She knew this, and she chose to weaponize her status as a white woman in this otherwise pretty trivial encounter. And all this because she couldn't just leash her dog and call it a day. This was a racist act. And more, this is an example of how systemic racism affects black birders and black naturalists. As this is sort of a nightmare scenario for a black birder. This is exactly the sort of thing that Drew Lanham and I talked about in an episode of the podcast about a year and a half ago. It was in August of 2018. Please look it up. And this whole thing resonated with me because like a lot of you, I have also gotten into shouting matches with people over unleashed dogs, but I have never had anyone call the police on me because of this. I have had encounters with law enforcement while birding and out of the way places. I have never been terribly concerned about my safety. I have been followed and stopped by antagonistic private citizens while doing a breeding bird survey. I've never worried that they would do harm to me. And the birding community, New York City Audubon, on whose board Christian serves, all of us are extremely fortunate that this encounter did not escalate in the way that it could have, in the way that we saw it escalate later that day. But I think we all know that that is a possibility. And if you are white like I am, maybe you want to know what you can do. But we have to clean up our own mess. It is not the responsibility of black birders in our midst to do this for us. And it is essential for the overwhelmingly white birding community to be aware of this and call this sort of stuff out. And I acknowledge that it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to acknowledge these shortcomings. It is uncomfortable to talk to people about this. None of this is as uncomfortable as worrying about whether your passion is going to put you in a place where you can be seriously hurt or killed. So what can we do to help? And I know that if you are still with me and haven't switched to a different podcast or unsubscribed and written me a nasty note that, let's be honest, I am going to ignore, that you want to be part of the solution. I still believe that as a whole, the birding community is inviting and welcoming and eager to share our passion with everybody. And it does pain me as it must undoubtedly pain you that this hobby that brings us so much joy and meaning isn't available in the same way to everybody. And just to acknowledge that I am a white man and a would-be ally, and you are hearing my voice on this because I am the host of this podcast and I feel like I have an obligation to speak on it in this space. But who you should be really listening to right now are the black birders and naturalists for whom this is their reality. And despite that, they are going out and doing things in nature anyway. Now, I love birds in nature. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't. But to continue to do it with all this sort of extra baggage, that is a love that is true. And they deserve your attention and support. Thankfully, a group of black naturalists has created this week, this very week that you, if you are listening to this, uh, when it is released, an event online. It's called Hashtag Black Birders Week. 
You can find it on Twitter. You can find it on Instagram. That seems to be the places where most of the energy is for this, though there's a little bit of it on Facebook as well. Please check it out. It has been uplifting. It has been inspiring. It has been eye-opening. At Black AF and STEM on Twitter is sort of the center of it, but hashtag Black Birders Week will get you there. Tonight, June 4th, if you are listening to this on the same day that this podcast comes out, there is a hashtag Birding While Black live stream discussion at 7 p.m. Eastern time. It will be simulcast on all the social medias and it will probably live somewhere online, even if you miss it. I'm recording this a few days before podcast is released, as you probably know, but please look for that. Listen, follow, amplify, be present. Why is this important? Well, representation matters. It is important for people to see people like themselves in our communities, in our magazines, in our various platforms. Let's grow this community. Let's make sure that people of all backgrounds know that the nature and birding community has their back and appreciates their contributions. I do believe that birding is a movement, and the last few months have sort of shown this to be true. I don't believe that any movement has any sort of moral authority unless it also includes the faces and voices of black people alongside the faces and voices of other marginalized communities. And a movement for nature exploration and bird conservation is one that I am really excited to be a part of and to grow. This is a way to do it. So go support hashtag Black Birders Week. Listen to what they have to say, internalize it, and let's get to work. On the show this week, I promised you David Sibley. I got David Sibley. He's got a new book, What It's Like to Be a Bird. We'll talk about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of May 2020. Birders are unable to travel to Alaska's St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs this spring, which will undoubtedly put a damper on the number of rare birds found there. But local birders are doing what they can to fill in, especially Barbara Lestenkoff, who has an impressive number of great sightings to her name. Her latest, a pair of lesser white-fronted geese, are the ABA area's third record and the second for St. Paul. Those birds are essentially two greater white-fronted geese, what Ross's goose is to snow goose smaller and cuter. They are an endangered species and not super common even where they're supposed to be. No doubt a lot of birders with scuttled plans this spring are frustrated, but it's great that someone on the island is keeping an eye on rare birds there. Another good one from the ABA area comes from North Carolina, where a stunning breeding plumage white-winged tern has been present near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse in Dare County, North Carolina, for about a week. This is the state's second record, but that one was a one-day wonder, so it feels a little bit like a first. But I do have one real first to report from Vermont, where a king rail has been showing off to birders in Orange County such that it should probably have its rail card taken away. Sorry, but you're a gallon rail now. That's all I have for this week. For all the rare birds I didn't mention, please check out the Rare Bird Alert Hub on the ABA website. There's something new there every Friday morning. That is aba.org slash RBA. You can also join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare or at our Rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. My guest today hardly needs an introduction to the ABA's audience. He is the author and illustrator of what is the most popular field guide in North America and the one simply known as the Sibley Guide, uh, now in its second edition. It is, of course, David Sibley, and he has a new book out earlier this year, What It's Like to Be a Bird, What Birds Are Doing and Why, From Flying to Nesting, Eating to Singing. It's a look at some of the fascinating behaviors and lives of our familiar birds, and of course, a vehicle for David's amazing artwork. So welcome, welcome, David. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nate. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
this book is not quite a field guide, though it has some field guide aspects at it, and it's not really kind of a how-to kind of book. What do you hope people get from this? Yeah, it well, the book had a strange sort of path to being. It, it started as an idea for a guide to birds for kids, so I wanted to introduce all of the most familiar birds in North America, the backyard birds and right. a few additional things like puffins and bald eagles and things that kids would know yeah, about. kind of flashy ones, yeah. Yeah, and I wanted it to be more than a field guide to explain some of the things the birds are doing and some of their sort of superpowers, their amazing abilities and adaptations. And the more I read about that and got into the research, for those parts of the book, that became essentially the the entire book. There's short <laughs> essays about just the amazing things that birds do and the stuff that I that I learned, you know, I thought I knew a lot about birds and reading researching these questions and reading for this book, I I was learning so much new stuff. So so it does it retains some of the kind of the aspects of a kid's book, that it's big, flashy colorful illustrations of birds really active doing stuff. I tried to keep it all sort of really layman's terms, simple explanations of everything. And then the field guide aspect is sort of the birds are presented in roughly taxonomic order and it's grouped by by species or by by family. Um and then all the topics are sprinkled around. So in the end, I, I hope that it's kind of a sense of discovery almost as you as you page through the book. There's different bits of information on every page, and it's all interrelated. But I, I hope that it, it it's a chance to kind of turn the page not really knowing what's going to be on the next page. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of really interesting, you know, I, I guess I want to say general information about birds, the sort of stuff that you don't typically see in, say, you know, a field guide. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so you, you saw this book as an opportunity to kind of share all these bird facts that you've you've picked up as a, you know, in a lifetime of studying birds, I imagine. Yeah. And and then one of my goals was to answer the most common questions that I heard from from everyone my non-birding friends and neighbors sure. and from other birders, like how do birds migrate all night without sleeping? Mm -hmm. um, why do, uh, I can't think of yeah. liking on questions. Yeah, but, but there's, there's a lot of really, a lot of really neat things in there. I mean, all this sort of general bird information is kind of put in the context of like a single bird species or a group of birds. You know, for instance, you use you know, cranes to discuss kind of the alignment of bird leg bones and you use swallows to talk about feather structure and juncos to kind of talk about feeding birds. How did you decide which bird was sort of the best example of a certain concept? Yeah, that was one of the most challenging parts of the book. Once I came up with the, the structure, such as it is, of presenting each species or group of related species on a on a two-page spread, then mm -hmm. figuring out which of the topics to include on those pages. So in some cases, it's really, it makes sense that, you know, with cranes, I talk about um, the differences between cranes and herons, that mm -hmm. they're not related, and there's a lot of fundamental differences. And then the, the leg bone structure, which 
works well with a big long-legged bird yeah, like a crane totally and then their social behavior their dancing but then once those topics are covered i can't use those somewhere else so i have <laughs> right, to pick right, and choose yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so some some made were obvious um you know talking about eyesight with eagles um the the rictal bristles of flycatchers some are very specific to a species but others were were kind of they could have gone on any number of pages and it was just kind of a puzzle to fit it all together yeah i'm sure and i had i had extra topics that didn't really fit anywhere and species that i wanted to say more about but there wasn't room, room to yeah. cover more. <laughs> so it, it's yeah it really ends up with a book any book it, it always ends up being just sort of a puzzle to fit in as much as you can set priorities and decide what ends up on the cutting room floor kind of yeah yeah one of the most striking things about this book is its size it is it is a big book and you've certainly used that space each section opens with these big you know full page illustrations of a bird or a, a group of birds that you're you're featuring how did you approach using this space and and how is sort of creating this kind of art you know showing these birds in dynamic postures or engaging in some sort of interesting activity different from you know your more well-known field guide work yeah that well the the size of the book comes again from a, starting out as a kid's book i wanted it to be big eight and a half by 11 uh, a decent sized page that you can really kind of spread out the illustrations you sort and, of sit down on your lap and really <laughs> it takes up your whole lap when you pull it out yeah 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 so it's meant to be read sitting down somewhere and and so that one of the original ideas that stuck with the the book to the end is the the big portraits of the birds on the left hand page of each spread. I, those are roughly life size. Yeah, the birds birds in those illustrations. Yeah, that certainly explains why you've got you know like a close up headshot of say a big bird like a pelican or a great blue heron and you know on something yeah. like a bunting there's like three little buntings there that that fit on there. Yeah. Yeah, so that I thought that it was just a fun sort of idea of a, a challenge and a yeah. and a fun thing to do. And I, I thought of it again, uh, thinking of it as a kid's book that to present the birds roughly life size to really give give you a sense of how big they mm. are. So that was part of the the idea behind the size of the book. And then the the other so those illustrations are are acrylic paintings uh no all the field guide illustrations of birds are done with gouache which is opaque watercolor and they're more um more precise mm -hmm. i use gouache almost as if it's colored pencil in a way hmm. a dry brush and and lots of cross hatching and layering of colors so a lot of precision and subtle layering of colors and with this the acrylic paint and the big paintings it's really you know, use a big brush, yeah. put in big swath, swaths of color and um, and focus on the, the movement and the action more than the details of the birds. Um, that was a lot of fun. And the other the other illustrations, I wanted them to be um, more sort of sketchbook style. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are just pencil, kind of a little bit more finished than what I would do in the field, but still just trying to capture the the motions of a bird as hmm. it goes about its whatever behavior I'm describing. Yeah. 
When you were painting the the illustrations, was the is is the artwork that is in the book the same size as the artwork that you were working on, or was it resized after the fact uh, to fit into the book? As this chicken and egg sort of question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always paint larger and and reduce the illustrations in the book. It it tightens up. You know, it allows me to be a lot more uh, loose and yeah. less less fiddly about the details. And then it, when it's reduced, it looks very detailed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the original the original is big and a little sloppy. Um, in this case, I did the original paintings exactly twice as big as the reproductions oh, wow. in the book. That's a good size painting. Yeah, they're 15 by 20. And that allowed me to um, deal with the measurements as I'm trying to do the bird's mm -hmm. life size. So I'm, I'm measuring, <laughs> getting, looking up measurements of the bird, measuring the sketch that I've produced, and then transferring that onto the big sheet of paper at, at double life size. Huh. It's just, it was easier to do the math <laughs> that way. Do you work from photos or field sketches or specimens that you might, you know, have access to? I work um, mostly using photographs as my reference mm -hmm. material. So I'm, I think of other, other artists and young artists hearing that and, and thinking, oh, I can just use photographs. But I, it's, I think it's so important all of my background in field sketching, the years mm -hmm. that I spent just watching birds and sketching, it it gives me a sense of what the bird, at least my own vision of what the bird really looks like. So then I can use photographs as my reference material, but I'm constantly modifying and adjusting and 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 then just sort of eyeballing the painting saying, that doesn't look quite right, mm -hmm. I need to change that. Um, so photographs are my my main source of reference for details but the kind of the whole character of the bird comes from my not not directly from my field sketches i don't pull out sketches and look at them as i'm mm -hmm. as i'm painting but just having done all that work in the field um, i can just look at a painting now um, and a lot of these paintings i would get them three quarters of the way finished and then hang them on the wall and just look at them for a week or two kind of walking in and out of the studio and glancing at the painting on the wall and after a few days often i would something would catch my eye and say oh i need to change that i i generally don't work from specimens mm -hmm. i don't have easy access to them yeah. <laughs> and i don't um i don't use my sketches directly um but the sketches are really the foundation of the work and then the photographs i, I can and photographs are just so so readily available yeah, there's so much so. material out there so a big thank you to all the photographers <laughs> who are out there doing all that work because i can find hundreds of photographs of brown pelicans yeah. to look at to to check details do you have enough sketches in your own kind of personal library after you know spending decades in the birding world and sketching for that entire time that you feel like you don't necessarily need to go out and get new sketches or do you always take the opportunity to kind of add to that library to fill it in or are there and are there certain behaviors that you don't necessarily have sketched that you need to go out and get and try to you know have that reference material available i actually don't 
the last few years I haven't done very much sketching. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, for uh, quite a few years, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of kind of undisturbed time. Yeah. If I have two hours to go out and walk around and look at birds, maybe I'll be able to uh, find a bird, settle down, and actually do a sketch. But it it takes a lot of watching, a lot a long time, like ten or fifteen minutes of studying a bird. And then I'll feel like I can try a sketch. Mm. So what I do nowadays, when I do sketch in the field, it's usually just a very quick, like a 15-second outline Mm -hmm. of a posture or a tail shape or something like that. But I'm constantly, when I'm out birding, I'm constantly thinking about sketching. I'm watching birds and thinking about, oh, look how the tail turns. Look Mm -hmm. at that posture. Look at those proportions. So sketching's always on my mind, and then when I'm back in the studio, I'm I'm drawing, and and sketching out paintings. So the field sketching has kind of uh, diminished. Uh, I'm spending more time in the studio writing and painting, less time field sketching. I think the most important thing I got from the sketching, and that I still get from it, is just um, that sense of what a bird really looks like. That uh, sort of, so even just going out for a one-hour walk every morning and looking at a bunch of birds, it just keeps that image fresh in my mind. To say that's that's the way an indigo bunting looks. That's what a blue jay looks like. That contact with birds, whether I'm actively sketching or not, that just the contact, that that sort of interaction is really important. Is there an illustration in this guide that you look at? and think, boy, I, I really nailed that one. I feel really, really good about that illustration. Yeah, I guess there, are, I have a few favorites of the, those, the big portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my personal favorites is the uh, chimney swift that's mm, yeah. flying, flying above the forest and a winding river. I feel like it really, it, I'm happy that it, it, to me, it captured the scene that I wanted to capture, which is the idea that chimney swifts live in the sky, that that's, their whole world is the open sky, <laughs> thousands of feet above the ground. So uh, chimney swift is a species that is it's so difficult to study. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was going to say difficult to photograph, <laughs> too. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what I created in the painting is my vision my sort of personal vision of what a chimney swift looks like when it's up there. Um, now, w- what they actually <laughs> look like is any anyone's right, guess. Yeah. But, uh, but I was really pleased with it, how that that painting came out. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and ask you sort of how birding has changed or if it has sort of changed during this current period of pandemic that we're sort of going through, you know, I've found myself doing a lot more kind of solo, solitary birding uh, with the birds that are, you know, found around my neighborhood. I've been doing a lot of birding kind of behind my house, uh, which is something more like what I did, you know, very early in my birding career. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that kind of solo time is is so important. And how, how has that sort of influenced your own birding and bird art trajectory? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm hearing... I hear similar things from a lot of people. They're saying that they've being forced to bird close to home mm-hmm. and alone. 
they're they're discovering great little pockets of habitat yeah, within totally. a few minutes walk of their house and finding a lot of birds that they had no idea were there when they used to get in the car and drive half an hour or an hour to go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and another thing a lot of people are commenting on is people who live in cities that they're hearing bird songs yeah. that they never heard before. Maybe just because there's less traffic noise, but maybe also the birds are kind of moving into the space that used to be uh, overwhelmed by people. Mm -hmm. But for me, the, this, this is the way I've always birded <laughs> <laughs> alone and just kind of poking around in whatever, whatever bit of habitat was closest. Um, I've always enjoyed just stepping out the door and, and starting birding. And we're, we're lucky right now we live on a, an old farm in Western Massachusetts. So, there's a few hundred acres out the back door and I can just, you know, while I'm sitting here at my desk right now, I'm hearing indigo bunting and veery mm -hmm. and yellowthroat and catbird. And especially over the last 10 or 20 years, my, my birding has shifted into much more detailed study of vocalizations mm -hmm. and behavior and plumage variation. So I'll spend a morning just watching and listening to catbirds or even lately, I've gotten really interested in the brown-headed cowbirds that are hanging around here. The, the flight whistles of the males are really individually unique and and regionally variable. So, anyway, that's it's not very different for me. <laughs> <laughs> this this shutdown, just uh, birding close to home and and alone, and spending a lot more time just focusing on individual birds and and common species. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled that other people are, are discovering the pleasure of that kind of bird watching. Yeah. I spoke to Jennifer Ackerman last month about her new book. And I think she would mm -hmm. say, uh, you know, probably justifiably that there's been this real revolution in the way that we understand birds, you know, most of it in the last couple decades, uh, you know, you've been in the birding and ornithology world for your whole life. Have you seen that revolution or are there things that, you know, we took as a given back then, you know, 30, 40 years ago that are still relevant to what we know about birds today? Yeah, I think there, yeah, I agree. There's a, been a, a shift or the shift is still ongoing mm -hmm. and that one of the big things is sort of, I want to say bird, bird personality or bird um, individual individuality. Mm -hmm. That I was talking to a researcher 20 years ago about a a study that they were working on with wood thrush migration and a bird that had uh, traveled up to the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula in the spring and then backtracked into Mexico hmm. and and eventually migrated around the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> and I said. That's amazing. Do you think it did it get to the tip of the Yucatan and decide, make a decision that it wasn't it didn't feel up to the flight or the weather wasn't conducive or something and and decide to go back around and and their response was, "Oh, they're just automatons. That's right. all instinct." Yeah. And I was struck by it then and I guess this this my new book is kind of a response to that <laughs> the more I <laughs> I've always kept that comment in mind because it struck me as too simplistic yeah. and and unfair to the birds. And 
There, so there's all kinds of research that shows that birds are, they are making decisions all the time. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of information that goes into what they do, what they choose to do each moment, each week. I get the sense that a lot of young researchers who are starting out now have that uh, a more open attitude towards, uh, you know, there's always been this stigma of anthropomorphizing mm -hmm. what birds do. And I think there's a lot more openness now to allowing birds to to be individuals, <laughs> to make to to have not necessarily emotions, but some kind of feelings Something like that, that, yeah. that influence their behavior. Yeah. So I think there's been a big shift in that way in in research. And there's a few papers recently on a simple test of whether individual birds are shy or bold, <laughs> and then. And then um, analyzing the rest of their behavior based on how they react yeah. to this this test of shyness or boldness. So that's a huge leap yeah, from the the everything's instinct. I imagine that's going to continue to change because birds they're so complex and so uh, they obviously have such a rich sort of personal life inner monologue yeah, that's yeah, yeah. going on um, that. Uh, I, I think that now that the the door's been opened, I think there will be a lot of research on those kinds of questions. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it is interesting. You know, mentioned in the in the crow section, the Aesop's fable, the crow in the pitcher, and how yeah. that story is about you know the crow out you know, solving a problem, which is something that in the last you know few decades we have seen as amazing ability of corvids in particular to sort of look at a, a problem yeah. and come up with innovative solutions to that problem. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe some of the stuff we know is stuff that people have known <laughs> for thousands of years, and we're only sort of realizing the truth of some of those old stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of this that, you know, people saw in, in observations, just simple observations of birds uh, a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> now research is catching yeah, up. Yeah, finally. Thank you so much, David. Uh, David Sibley is no doubt one of the best known birders in the world today. His new book is What It's Like to Be a Bird. It is beautiful and informative and exactly the sort of thing that I would imagine would go down really well these days. Um, thank you so much for your time. It was really great to chat with you. Thanks, Nate. It was a pleasure. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a nonprofit membership driven organization, and the best way to support this podcast and the many other things we do for the birding community is to join the ABA. You get magazines, you get discounts to our partners, you help us do stuff like this. We even have e memberships and discounted memberships for young birders. You can get more information at aba.org/slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Diane and Mark Bounds of Winnetka, Illinois, Matthew Ryan and the Ryan household at Silver Spring, Maryland, Amy Severino of Groton, Massachusetts, Cecilia Dumois of St. Petersburg, Florida, Judy Grant of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Kia Jasper of South Bruce Peninsula, Ontario, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. With a mind towards David Sibley's famous field guide, he's creating the definitive guide to the identification of collarless pullover shirts with two to five buttons. He's calling it the Henley Guide. Technical direction is by John Lowry, who is marketing a comprehensive photo guide to every endocrine organ on the Oregon transfer list for use 
by doctors, obviously. I was calling it the Kidney Guide. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, whose illustrated guide to every Major League team logo in the world is called the Big League Guide. Big League Guide. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash butters, and on Twitter at ABA. I'm publishing all of my absent-minded scratch paper art in a massive, thick volume for home use that I'm calling the Scribbly Guide. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, everybody. We'll be back next week 